Hiring? With Indeed, your search is over. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash match. Just go to Indeed.com slash match right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash match. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. Full Court Press has the latest news and opinions from men's and women's college basketball. Our hosts are John Fanta, who calls games all around the country for Fox Sports and others, and Kim Adams, an analyst for Fox and ESPN, and a former D1 baller who never saw a three-point opportunity she didn't like. If you don't believe me, check her Twitter page. Take it away, guys. Welcome to a brand new Full Court Press on this Monday, August 17, 2020. I'm John Fanta, and today we welcome in ESPN CBS Sports color commentator and analyst Mike O'Donnell. Mike played at NC State and UCF, and he's going to come on to talk about the current state of college basketball, plus the teams to watch in the American heading into the coming season. The coach that you may not know a lot about nationally and the player you may not know a lot about nationally heading into this upcoming season that you're going to want to mark down right now. And we even had some movie fun as well. On this Monday afternoon, big news in college basketball, Dan Gabbett, the senior vice president of basketball, we had him on this show a little bit more than a month ago. He comes out with a statement. It's on NCAA.com. And in that statement, it says that the men's and women's basketball oversight committees in Division I are going to meet over the coming weeks. And there will be more info on the state of the 2020-21 season and a potential slight delay uh, that'll come out in an announcement around mid-September. So the NCAA being proactive, that's real leadership. It's the leadership right now that well, just is not in place in college football because there's no uniformity in the Power Five and beyond. And in college basketball, we've talked about it, how necessary an NCAA tournament is, but also the unknown of college sports and the feasibility of it. But what we are seeing is they're being proactive. As of now, there's teams getting back onto campuses. There's obviously students getting back onto campuses. But the NCAA has had to have seen what's happened in bubble life and the bubble potential in college basketball. It's there. And if there's a way to pull it off financially, then they're going to do everything they can to pull it off because it'll all come back to them as an association with March Madness, with that Turner television contract and all the benefits that they reap during the big dance, getting to that big dance floor There's never been a path like this one. There's no roadmap on this. But what we can say in the NCAA on this Monday afternoon as we record is that you give credit to Dan Gavitt and the folks that are uh, in the leadership responsibilities for putting a message out, for saying they're meeting about this, because the thought in mind with the way college football's gone is the NCAA in the sport of basketball, which they govern basketball, they don't govern FBS football. They're going to have to be proactive and learn from some of the things that we've seen over the last couple of weeks in the sport of college football. Well, they're being proactive. We're going to know more mid-September. It might not be the best news. We might get a slight delay, but I think you're going to see more solutions being made in college basketball. Maybe, I, maybe I'm an optimist. Maybe I'm being too positive, but I think you're going to see more solutions potentially being put out there with what we know now in terms of success of bubbles in terms of the idea that basketball teams are nowhere near the size of a travel party as a football team, and the fact that, uh, well, for the NCAA's life, collective life, they need an NCAA tournament. Getting a lead-up to that is necessary. How they come to that, that's a question. But I think we're going to find a solution. And maybe I'm being positive about it. Maybe there's another road that this goes down. But I think it's doable. 
We'll see what happens, but for now, we know that mid-September is that timeline. We dove into that. We dove into college football, life on a college campus, how a bubble works, and so much more with Michael Donald this week. He is a college basketball color analyst on ESPN and CBS Sports, a former NC State Wolfpack player, as well as with the UCF Knights. We've got Michael Donald joining us on Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams this week. And Mike, we're talking with convenient timing here as we record on this Monday afternoon, the NCAA. Dan Gavitt, the Senior Vice President of Basketball, has put out a statement about the status of the 2020-21 college hoop season, saying that the oversight committees for men's and women's basketball are going to meet in the coming weeks. We'll have more news on the status of the season and whether a short-term delay, as quoted in the statement, will be needed. What is your reaction to this announcement? Uh, appreciative of the leadership. Uh, I'm a big Dan Gavin fan. You kind of wish that uh, college football had that similar leadership, right? You've got so much chaos with college hoops. This is an opportunity for the NCAA, Dan Gavitt, and other conferences to have a unified voice. You make no mistake, uh, I believe that college basketball is learning from the chaotic communication that we've seen from college football. And I think it's the right call, right? I mean, you know, John, I, I followed a lot of your stuff on Twitter. Uh, I, you know, we follow a lot of the same people. We all kind of agree that overstatement of the century that this thing is really serious what we have going on. So let's not make any rash decisions. Let's follow the science. Let's understand protocol. Let's learn from what the professionals have done. And I think a postponement, worst case scenario, in the 2020 start of the season is the best thing you can do because you have to learn first before anything else outside of long-term effects, outside of, uh, 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 of what happens right now and how you practice or play games, you've got to understand whether or not you can even handle college students on campus while you're practicing first. So announcing, you know, uh, learning in the next couple of weeks what is actually going to be reality for a lot of teams is going to be something that Dan Gavitt and, and the NCAA committee is going to be following closely. Mid-September is the timeline that they've put out for the next piece of news on college basketball season. You just brought it up that you believe in the idea of postponement. When would that postponement be to in your mind? Well, I, I, I think it's very possible to do a decent non-conference slate in winter break. Uh, you can create somewhat of a pseudo bubble. It's not even, it's, can't, it's nothing close to what the NBA has. But during winter break with students off campus, I can attest it's a ghost town. There's nobody on campus. And usually even off campus, there's still population is almost cut in half when students are off campus. So during that winter break, it's simultaneously uh, for players. It's a good thing and a bad thing. It's a good thing in that you don't have to worry about school. It's a bad thing in that you are watching so much film. You are practicing so much. You, it's uh, the Christmas practices are the worst practices of the year by uh, by far. But from a coaching standpoint, from an administrative standpoint, um, not everybody lives on campus. But for the teams that pl and players that live on campus, you can really simulate right horse blinders in that you're going from dorm to practice, dorm to practice. You could have three meals a day in the athletic facility. You go up to your gym or downstairs to your practice gym. You practice and you go back to your dorm and you have curfew set in place. And to organize some t four to five games in non-conference, maybe even more during winter break, I think is very doable. Michael Donnell, our guest, a college basketball color commentator for ESPN and CBS Sports. And Mike, you've talked with athletic directors about everything going on. What are your takeaways from those conversations? Oh, where to start? I won't take you down too deep of a rabbit hole. Um, first thing that everybody has to understand is athletic directors will not be making the decisions for their individual schools. You have, I can't stress that enough. I'm not take, trying to take away power from ADs. That's just not the way the structure works. It's presidents and conference commissioners. And also, John, uh, without, without really... Uh, uh, divulging too much information, you have to take into account your powerful donors. Uh, those are the individuals that will be the sounding board, will be sometimes the microphone 
for athletic directors for what they want to say, what they need to say, and what they can say. That's a little side note. Um, really what we're looking at is there is, from a college basketball standpoint, there's an idea of trying to figure out a way to make uh, winter break non-conference schedules work, whether it's bubbled tournaments uh, in different states uh, to where you're, you're, you're just going from hotel on site into the ballroom where the gym is, um, and then pushing what an actual schedule looks like for spring. Um, uh, I am all for spring sports. I think it would be a blast from the viewer standpoint. I would, you know, just if you're just a fan and, you're, and you turn on the TV and you get to watch Creighton Butler uh, for an hour and a half, two hours, and you flip the channel and you've got, you know, uh, Clemson, North Carolina in the afternoon from a football standpoint, that would be, that'd be great. That'd be incredible to watch. So I'm all for it. Um, uh, the difficult thing when it comes to spring sports is not every campus is set up to house every single sport, all of their schedules, all of the operations directors in one kind of outfit. You'd really have to stagger the games as much as you could. You're talking athletics employees that would be working almost 18 hour days. It would be in some schools, it could be impossible, but it's a lot better than cutting sports. I talked to a Pac-12 school um, that said, if we don't play college football, we will lose 87% of our revenue, 87% of our budget. And when people say, well, good, you know, let, let's just blow up the all of college sports. And if they lose 87% of the revenue, so be it. That's one of the most disrespectful things you could actually say. When you lose in a business, 87% of revenue is not 87% of profit. When you lose that revenue, things die, things disappear, things go away. You're talking about cutting sports. If you cut a women's sport, you have to cut a men's sport, uh, men's sport scholarships from a Title IX perspective. You're talking thousands and thousands of athletes that could be without a home uh, from a college standpoint. So colleges, ADs are doing everything they possibly can to figure out a way to make this work. And the last thing I'll say, John, is for conferences, particularly college football, Big Ten and the Pac-12, which I think is really interesting, is that there isn't a, um, a, a if they're not going to play, if they say we're just not going to play in the spring, what they're going to have to do is they're going to have to take out a loan to survive. We're talking a $100 million loan. Some Pac-12 schools will be trying to take out a loan against the university. And some Pac-12 schools, their athletic programs don't have a great relationship with the university and are actually looking at taking out loans from major donors or one particular major donor at like 3.5%. That's kind of business talk, but that's the in-depth type of college basketball business, college athletics business that we're not talking about enough. Let's spring off that thought of potential non-conference play around the holidays in those openings that you could have teams go to a hotel and potentially go down to a ballroom or, or something of that effect. When people ask, well, what's the logistics of this situation? What's the financials of this situation? The way that I see it right now, Mike, is the NCAA is going to do absolutely whatever it takes to make these types of things happen, to have a lead up to March Madness and everything that comes with March Madness, which is a lot of cash that you're looking at a situation where when people ask, well, how is this feasible? How is this doable? In my mind, Mike, we, have, we are getting to the point where if it is remotely feasible for the NCAA to find a way to pull this off, they're going to do everything in their power to do so. Because if you go another March without a big dance and have two consecutive big dances gone, the NCAA, a part of it, has already uh, fallen into a what I would call a life support mode. If you have a second big dance done, no March Madness again, the NCAA, as we know it, will cease to exist. That's just the reality of this situation. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, I, I half agree to that, only that what most people don't realize is when the NCAA makes a billion dollars off the NCAA tournament, it doesn't go into an NCAA bank account and Mark Emmerich pockets the cash. It pays for every, except for football, it pays for every single sports championship, every single one. That includes the men's basketball tournament for the upcoming year. And you're talking 
hundreds of millions of dollars outside of just the sports championships that won't be going to the individual conferences and institutions, you're talking, I, I don't like throwing around the word catastrophic uh, because I think you just, sometimes people just use that as a hot take or to get clicks. If you don't have the NCAA tournament this season, it would be catastrophic for hundreds of athletic programs, Division I athletic programs. It would be a complete disaster. Mike, so yes, you, you have to find a way to make it work. Mike, you played the sport. We now cover it. Nobody wants it to happen more than us. Right. By the same token, there are still clear hurdles. As we talk right now, North Carolina just went all remote for the rest of the fall semester. We're talking about a week, a week that they were on campus. I'm curious to see what happens with other major campus reopenings. And for those people who bring up the fact, because I've gotten this question a lot on Twitter, and I think it's, it's good for us to talk about this topic because people want to know the answers to it. And again, we want things more than ever. We want to return to normalcy. But this is the reality of the situation. I got a question saying, if students can be on campus and going to classes, why can't teams practice and then play games? Well, here's the thing. By a wide standard, we are seeing campuses give that option of opening up their dorm halls for those students. Because again, checks in the mail and those dorm halls being open, these campuses have to, the, athletics is just one segment of how they operate and how they monetize. And the class structure, again, with a lot of these campuses, just because a student is in a dorm hall does not mean that they're showing up to a class gathering of 75 people in a lecture hall. There's a huge, <laughs> huge difference between being in a dorm hall with your roommate and I know college kids are going to go out and, and socialize and party and being a football player that's going from campus to campus, traveling, doing all those types of things and doing what a student athlete does. Yeah. So a couple things to that, John, that's some really good points. Uh, first, one of the reasons why New York got hit so bad was because everything is slammed in together, right? I mean, there's just no breathing room. It's building on top of a building, restaurant on top of a restaurant. And it's so many people packed into a small area. Well, college campuses are built very similarly, right? So you've got to think about um, if, uh, if an athlete lives on campus and he's going to his dorm and there could be, you know, there's thousands of, uh, of students in the dorm room. Well, then you've got the laundry mat, you've got the cafeteria, you've got classrooms, you've got everything all connected together, tight, compact. It's a, it's a mini, every, Almost every single college campus is a mini New York City. Um, now, the one thing I will say, though, that where you have to, you almost kind of have to separate the two. I, I think back to the time where I was traveling, when I went to a road game, you can simulate a pretty good bubble. You really can. Uh, because first, what they're telling us is that airlines, whether it's true or not, John, you know, I, I don't know anymore what's true from a news perspective. But from an from a airline travel, what they're saying, what everybody's reporting is that it's very safe to be in an airplane because the way that they have structured and set up the airflow system, it's very clean and easy to be on a plane. Now, okay, so the way it's set up for travel-wise, you, uh, you, uh, you're on campus, you get on the bus as a team, you're only with your team, you go straight to the airport, you check in, you, 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 uh, you, you're flying the plane, you land the plane, you get on the bus, you go straight to the hotel. You eat at the hotel, you sleep at the hotel, you watch film at the hotel, you study at the hotel, and you go from hotel to bus to gym. You can create a pseudo bubble, like I said. It's not gonna be like the TBT. It's not gonna be like what the NCAA tournament's going to try to do to where it's gonna be even more compact. But from a travel perspective, yes, there are a bunch of things that can go wrong, no question. But I didn't see a soul when I traveled except for my teammates and coaching staff. I didn't see anybody. On campus, it's a free-for-all. When students are off campus, absolutely, you can create a pseudo-bubble example, to your point. But on campus, I think of, you, you know, you're monitoring the Northeast. John, I'm a mile from UCS campus. It's the largest institution in the country. It's over 60,000 students. How are you supposed to mitigate some type of poke in the bubble on campus. I don't know how you do it. Are those students on campus right now or are they planning on being on campus? They will be in the next few days, yes. They will Doesn't be in that the next come few off days. as a terrible decision? 
I don't know. Um, uh, I think if you don't have a plan, uh, it's a terrible decision. If you're expecting cases to, to have a, a spike in cases when you bring students on campus, then you have to have plan A, B, and C. John, I think it's a bad, I, I think it's a bad idea if you don't give students the opportunity to pick either on campus or off ca- or, or e-learning, right? Um, but I, 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 if you're if you're allowing students on campus, you don't and you don't have a mask mandate and you don't have plan A, B, and C for how you try to mitigate the risks, it's just you're, 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 you're in for a disaster. There's no question. So here's my thought process as well, and you just said it uh, when you were playing, that you only saw your teammates and your coaching staff and the support staff up until the game. When you arrived to the, the gym, you played, and then you hopped on a charter flight back or hopped on a bus back. The, the thought process here from people is, well, these are student athletes. They're going to go to class. For the majority of these campuses, if not all of them, you just said it, that virtual option is available for these students. What is the difference between being in a dorm hall for a student athlete, not playing, uh, to potentially being in a bubble, being at a hotel, they get their chance to take their classes, like you just said, you study in your team hotel, and then you go down and you play your game in the ballroom. For me, I don't think that playing in a bubble is something – you're always going to have that crowd of people who say, well, they're student athletes. They shouldn't be in the bubble. But I think it is totally justifiable for the NCAA to go to a bubble structure as long as, and they would, have those academic service support staff that are there, part of the team's travel party, and supporting them throughout. That already happens in college basketball under normal circumstances during the season. In my mind, there's not an argument there that would trump the idea of playing in a bubble because a bubble would perfectly allow these student athletes to still be the student in the classroom and play games. And Oh, by the way, their health and safety would be much better off than what it is. Like you just said in a mini New York city on a campus. In theory, you're absolutely right. Uh, it comes down to money though, John, and some schools just may not be able to afford to create a bubble atmosphere. Some, some schools may not, uh, you know, they may have one academic advisor for 14 sports. And how, how are you supposed to have academic oversight for every single day while you're inside of a bubble and then leave? If you're having it for men's basketball, what happens to soccer, track, volleyball, baseball? That's then you have to hire more academic advisors. It does come down to a cost. You're right. It, it, after it, you it, furlough them. You know, after you furloughed no them, no doubt, no doubt. Uh, that's the difficult thing with this, and that's um, some schools can afford it. A lot of schools can figure like would actually maybe take on some debt in order to do that, knowing that you'd make up for it with the following season, as long as you have football, because that's the big that's the big money maker. Yes, you can create what you're trying to what you're saying is is absolutely correct because it's exactly what the TBT did the that summer basketball tournament did without classes. When you when you when you add the class aspect into it, do you have enough infrastructure from your athletics program to provide enough academic oversight if you went to online classes only, which you can you can go to online classes only. The other thing too, John, is not every athlete lives on campus. I've actually heard a few SEC schools, their basketball staff, um, a, a lot of their players live, uh, you know, it's, it's three or four together in an off-campus apartment. What they've been doing is moving their players into one-bedroom apartments in order to mitigate contact tracing so they can avoid some of the contact tracing <laughs> for when the season actually comes around, but it's, it's certainly wild. Mike, will we see some semblance of college football this fall? Yeah, I, I, I oh, in this fall, um, I didn't mean to jump the gun. Um, I'm not sure with the NCAA coming out and saying, we don't feel as if it's medically safe to play fall sports at the capacity in which it's set up to be now. Um, I think we'll see, I think worst case scenario, we'll see a postponement. I think best case scenario is you'll see a January or February college football start. 
Um, I just think as the SEC releases a schedule the day that we're taping this. <laughs> well, the Big Ten released their schedule, and then 48 hours later, they shut it down. It's a total, total lack of leadership. If you're worried, it's it does. Nobody wants to talk about this, but it does come down to risk. It does. Now, and then you're getting lawyers involved and all that. It, it, it's so nuanced. It's crazy. Players want to play. I would want to play if I was playing, I'd just being honest. I'd probably be organizing secret pickup games at 2 o'clock in the morning, John, when I wasn't supposed to be doing that. <laughs> um, but I think the best case scenario is a 2021 start for college football because I think you're going to have this better – you're going to have better testing. We saw what the NBA and Yale did where they came out with the saliva testing. You're going to have better, cheaper access to testing. There's a potential for a vaccine. You have to get, for John, for me, in Central Florida, this is what I pay attention to. I pay attention to hospitalizations because hospitals are packed in Florida right now because it's a mixture of COVID-19 patients as well as all of these elective surgeries that people have been putting off because elective surgeries were completely shut down in the state for essentially three months. Athletes are going to get hurt and they're going to get sick with something other than COVID-19. The last thing you want is your primary care physician for your team to be in the COVID-19 floor only seeing COVID-19 patients because it's so packed. You can't have that happen. For that reason, I think a 2021 start is the best way to go for college football. Would it surprise me if the SEC, the ACC, and the Big 12 and the American decided to play football, let's say, in a Thanksgiving start? Wouldn't surprise me in a bit. It's just a fascinating topic, and you just brought up that word risk. And the Big 10 has been a little bit all over the place in their messaging, but one thing I agreed with was their whole idea that you don't know the full risk of this pandemic still. And with that unknown and with some of those heart issues that we're seeing from athletes pop up and potentially pop up down the road, you want to try to get all the data. And, and the simple case is this, this came up in March. We really haven't made many advancements on knowledge of what this pandemic does uh, because there's a level of unknown with it across both ends of the spectrum. You get it so severely that it results in death or you're asymptomatic. It's, it's just such a fluid situation, Mike. And as much as we want this to all come back, it still feels like in, in my mind that that level of risk and that level of, of student athletes, the liability of potential issues that universities could have to face, uh, that those legality issues, there's such a level of unknown and fluidity with it that not playing ended up being, or not playing right now ends up being the best option here as sad as that sounds um yeah you know i i know you're trying to be the bearer of bad news john i'm just kidding buddy um and uh i think the biggest thing is when you talk about risk it it really does come down to following the medical advice what i find strange is this is never in my life i'm not a smart guy but i'm not the dumbest person in the world I have never asked my doctor for his uh, uh, political affiliation after he's prescribed me medicine. Uh, I find it very strange now that we are, we are only following medical advice that depends on what our, the rhetoric in our head actually is. And I think that's a dangerous place to be and not to get too philosophical, but I, I think that when the director of infectious disease at Duke, who is the director of medicine for the ACC comes out and says, we can find a way to play safely. He doesn't say when, but we can find a way to play safely. Why is his opinion not as valuable as the PAC-12's medical director opinion, right? I mean, that's where, that's where someone like college football needs a Dan Gavitt, whoever sees college basketball. They really need that. I don't know if it's a, everybody's, we need a czar or whatever the term you want to use, but you do need some type of oversight and some type of leadership to say, here's what our medical team is saying. Here's what we feel are the best practices. And here's what we feel 
is reality. Um, uh, uh, I'm someone when it comes to athletics where I am very risky in that I, I uh, John, I used to memorize, I memorized the concussion protocol so that I could get out of sitting out of multiple games or practices. I was just wired like that. And John, a lot of guys are like that or they'll just, they will pretend not to be sick or, or it's, it's not a serious injury or my head doesn't really hurt because I don't want to miss games or practices. Um, you've got to that with, you've got to balance that. What's the risk for the long-term effects? It is strange. We don't know. Like you said, John, I'm someone who tries to live in the middle of common sense. I've never seen something so asymptomatic and deadly at the same time. I've never seen so much misinformation. Uh, it, no matter what news channel you turn on, you turn on, you don't know, which is why, which is why I feel like following infectious disease experts is the best course of action and why there isn't the, and why there isn't a pool of infectious disease experts that's overseeing this whole thing saying, here's what our suggestion is. I, I, for the life of me, I can't understand why the major conferences haven't gotten each of their individual medical directors and said, here's what we got to do. Let's turn to the actual state of the sport on the floor. You do a lot of coverage around the American conference and heading into this upcoming season, the league obviously uh, undergoes some change with UConn exiting. I take a look at the strength of the league and you go down south and you think about what Kelvin Sampson has built at Houston. What do you see in the Cougars' potential for 2020-21? Oh, they're, they're a minimum top 20 team. Um, they have exceptional, except, exceptional talent, even with Fabian White out with an injury. Um, uh, even with Nate Hitton, who's gone uh, off to the NBA, decided to keep his name in the draft. Um, you have a superb backcourt. Uh, and Caleb Mills, and Quentin Grimes, and Marcus Sasser, Dejan Giroux. It's one of the best backcourts in the country. Um, they are the, – the two things about Houston that you have to understand is they can win pretty and they can win ugly. Um, they, were, they turned the ball over way too much last season, but they are one of the uh, best defending and rebounding teams in all of college basketball. They're, they're one of those – Houston, neutral court, you don't want to play against Houston because of how physical they are, how well, uh, how well they rebound. And my, the best compliment I can give Houston is they, the reason why, one of the reasons why their defense is so good is they don't take bad shots. They are really, really good and consistent at taking great shots. They didn't have the shooters that they had in the years past, but they take great shots that allows them, you don't get fast break, uh, fast break points on Houston because of that. Um, and I think if you stay in Texas too, John, uh, the job that Coach Jankovic did at SMU was outstanding. Wow. You know, they were that borderline bubble team. I don't know if they would have gotten in, but you could have made a case to get in. Um, and they return essentially everybody except for Isaiah Mike. And you've got Darius McNeil transferred from Cal, a really, really great combo guard to add to Kendrick Davis, who was arguably the most underrated playmaker in college basketball, averaged almost seven assists a game. It's an offense that I would want to play in. It's very five-out, NBA-focused, almost positionless basketball that's very difficult to scout against. It's not like he's just running play after play after play. It's really putting guys in spots and reading defense, and uh, it's really smart, really fun basketball. And that's, those are the two top two teams in the American Conference for me. Yeah, it speaks volumes to what both those coaches have been able to do. I remember thinking about SMU heading into last season, and the perception nationally was, oh, they're in a rebuild, the retooling mode, because they're young this year. Well, that youth produced last year, got them almost to the tournament. We, we don't know what would have happened. But now another year older, you bring in a transfer of McNeil. That's a really sneaky program, the Mustangs. It's a dangerous – it's the, that dangerous – fringe top 25 team because of their ability to shoot. They are one of the best passing teams in all of college basketball. Incredibly unselfish. I just love watching them play. The Houston and SMU, those two teams are the top two teams in the American Conference. And then there's then, then I really think, I think the country is sleeping on Memphis. I think the talent is outstanding. 
I think if they, especially if they get Landers Nolly, the transfer from Virginia Tech eligible um, after transferring from Virginia Tech, I think it adds another element to Penny Hardaway's really kind of electrifying uh, talent. You've got Damian Baugh, Boogie Ellis, Lester Quinones. They're all three of those guys are potential all-conference players. And then Musa Cisse, who is an absolute beast in the middle, is going to just terrify opponents on the defensive end because of his uh, rim-protecting ability. Penny Hardaway can coach. He can. And I think he bring, he's trying to bring in an NBA system. They're going to run a lot of what the Milwaukee Bucks do right now uh, of where they'll put uh, uh, someone in uh, really on the free throw line, kind of four out one in without your strict kind of back to the basket player. And I think it's going to be a fun offense to watch. And people forget the Tigers were a top five defensive team in the country top five in the country last season nobody protected the rim in the American Conference better than the Memphis Tigers did um, and that that goes to speak to I think uh, Penny Hardaway's coaching ability and then four five and six for me it's going to be a shuffle uh, I think you're sleeping on Wichita State I think the fact that Dexter Dennis is back um, you've got a you've got a, a Tyson uh, ETN you've got Altery Gilbert who's going to be able to just go and run and that's a group of backcourt that's going to play mean and angry like Coach Marshall uh, likes. And then South, uh, I look at South Florida as well. Alexis Yetna, people forgot about him. He, uh, he almost won freshman of the year in the American Conference two years ago. He tore his ACL last season. He's back. They got a four-star recruit, Caleb Murphy, who is an electrifying offensive player. Um, and then you've also got a transfer, Luke Anderson from Iowa State. South Florida is really, really good. And then – I think if you head over to UCF, that's the best front court in, in, in the American Conference. Colin Smith is, uh, is a double-double guy. Sean Mobley, who transferred from VCU, who's a point forward, is one of those forwards who can grab a rebound, push and transition, distribute and initiate the fast break. And then C.J. Walker, who is a McDonald's All-American, started at Oregon for a number of games. If they get him eligible, if they get C.J. Walker eligible, it's the best front court in the American Conference. You played the game. You just talked about Penny Hardaway running buck schemes. How much are you continually seeing the cutting edge NBA schemes now flooding into the college game? I think it's less about high flying athleticism and it's more about basketball IQ and shooting and playmaking. Uh, you want guys that can make plays, number one. You want guys that can shoot. And you want guys who understand how to manipulate a defense. And that's key. It's not just driving to the rim and getting to the rim. And it's not just driving and kicking. You want those hockey assist guys, too. Um, the game is open. It's four out, one in, or it's five out. And I look at Iowa and Creighton as really good examples. I mean, John, I mean, I mean you're a junkie. Nobody thought Iowa would have the season that they did last season. And Luca Garza was fantastic. That's great. But when you surround a big guy like that with four guys that can shoot, put it on the deck and create, it's really, really dangerous. And the reason why it's dangerous is because it's you can scout for plays all you want. You can scout for schemes. But when it's one on one and spacing, I hated being on an island as a, as a defender. You have you don't want to be in an island as a defender if a guy who can break you off the dribble and after he kicks it, he might be getting a flare screen that wasn't even planned. It's just what Luca Garza sees as an opening because they've got great spacing. And then Creighton is another great example of that. That was the best offensive team I saw in college basketball last season. You've got shooter after shooter after shooter. Every single player is unselfish. And they ran schemes that a lot that you'll see uh, that came down from the NBA. It's all about putting, putting in players in space for a three. If a three isn't there, you have one counter, two counter, three counters, and it all kind of loops around. Their stagger screen action, and I'm getting a little bit inside basketball talk. Sorry, John. But their stagger screen action that, that Creighton utilized was almost unguardable because it wasn't like you had to guard the stagger screen. You then had to, after you, if you guarded the stagger screen correctly, there were four more actions immediately taking place that weren't robotic. It was all off the of field and understanding space and positioning. And I just think you're seeing more and more of that. 
SMU doesn't have the shooting that Creighton has, but it's a similar offense, that kind of uh, idea of utilizing proper space and pace is something you're going to see more and more of as college basketball evolves. All right, some rapid fire with Mike O'Donnell. The player in the sport that not enough people are talking about heading into the upcoming season is? Fats Russell of Rhode Island. Um, he's one of the best scoring guards in college basketball. Uh, Rhode Island was on the cusp to go to the NCAA tournament. He is my, one of my favorite players to watch in college hoops. He's completely morphed his game. He was top two in the country in steals, almost got 20 points a game, and would single-handedly win Rhode Island games. Uh, the Mitchell brothers just got eligible for Rhode Island. Yeah. I think Rhode Island is one of those mid-major teams, not quite Dayton level uh, in terms of last season, but Fats Russell's a guy who's going to give you 30 any night. Best team in the A-10, or does that belong to Richmond? Oh, no, that belongs to Richmond. Uh, absolutely. Uh, I do think the second-best team – I think it's a toss-up between Dayton and St. Louis. St. Louis is the best defensive team in the country that you don't know about. And Dayton, with the Crutcher coming back, still has plenty of weapons. Yeah. And Anthony Grant's a fantastic coach. But Richmond has uh, Jacob Gilliard, who is uh, – uh, Fats Russell uh, led the country uh, – was second in the country in steals. Jacob Gilliard was first. They run a great offense. They've got shooters. They've got speed. And they are a phenomenal offensive team. The A-10 is a blast to watch. Yeah, Richmond offensively, the, the offense that they run. You want to talk about a, a team that's moving off the ball everywhere you look. I saw them play at Barclays last November. I forget who they played. The opponent was for, ended up being a – it was a power conference team that was forgettable because of how good Richmond was on the night. Yeah. They just looked so – good offensively they are going to be one tough out this upcoming season yeah they're de but their defense really sets the tone uh you've got they, they can they're so aggressive either in the press or in the half court that it's it, it can become suffocating and then in transition i don't think anybody goes from defense to offense which is a skill john that has to be coached and learned nobody goes from defense to offense better than the richmond spiders in the atlantic 10 wisconsin I say forgettable. They beat Wisconsin 62 to 52. You know, you not go. that Wisconsin's known for scoring, but look at it, 52 points. Yeah, would you want to face the Richmond Spiders on a neutral floor in the NCAA tournament? No. No, that's easily, easily one of those Sweet 16 teams when I'm filling out my bracket. All right, who's the toughest player you ever faced? Toughest? That's a really great question. Um, I don't think – I just don't think anybody will ever come close to Redick. Um, when I was at NC State, I mean, he was known as a shooter, but we bumped him, grabbed him, pulled him, pushed him, and he still gave us 30. <laughs> like it was nothing. Uh, I don't think J.J. Redick gets enough credit for how tough he is and how tough he was in college. Um, because of, you know, some people may have not liked the way he played from an attitude perspective, or you only saw the deep threes and, and the 35, 40 point outbursts, but he was being pushed, pulled, dragged, illegal screened as, as much as he possibly could. But Reddick was absolutely just, just an animal. And I think the second toughest player ever played against it was a point guard. His, his name was Squeaky Johnson of UAB. He was a guard who led the country in steals. That I, I, Squeaky Johnson was – I basically had to throw up before every time I played UAB because he was that menacing. I just knew it was just going to be 40 minutes of picking me up, 90 feet. There's nothing I could do about it. The coach who might not be known as well nationally – who you're willing to take a bet on going forward is? You know, that's a really good question. I, I think I'd probably say John Brandon of Cincinnati. I'll keep the wow. American Conference. Yeah, I, I, I thought the job that he did in Northern Kentucky was fantastic. you got to remember, that was two NCAA tournaments in four or five years. Uh, I'll say five years to be safe. But they had only been Division One for seven years. That's a good point. I mean, that was uh, the job, the recruiting that everybody talks about John Brand and, and, and his coaching prowess and his X's and O's and his ability to scout and understand schemes. And it's an offense that 
if you're a great scorer, great shooter, you love to play in because you've got so much freedom and space to operate. But his ability to recruit efficiently and recruit guys, sell them on a vision, and then build an offense around his players was, I mean, it, that's the why he got the Cincinnati job. Uh, nobody, it's Northern Kentucky, they're like, oh, yeah, John Brandon, great coach, you know, good X's and O's guy, good offense. Yeah, he went to a couple NCAA tournaments. They were only in D1 for seven years. And now he's got more resources. He's got a bigger recruiting space, a bigger recruiting budget, better facilities. I think John Brandon at Cincinnati is going to be a name that we're going to talk about more and more and more as a, as a coach that just is an elite coach. With Jaron Cumberland gone, what's life like for the Bearcats going forward? Uh, you'll see more of an open offense. You know, we, we, we talked a lot about Iowa and Creighton, John, and, and Coach Brandon has that similar philosophy. It's very much about you're going to see five out or four out, one in, a lot of movement, cutting with purpose. Um, there's a player, there's a transfer that they have, a grad transfer they have named Rapolis Ivanowskis from Colgate. I actually had an opportunity to call one of Colgate's games two years ago, and I was completely floored with his play. He might be one of the most underrated front court scorers in all of college basketball. He's he is like that Dirk Nowitzki, Luka Doncic. That is a nightmare problem where he can pick and pop, he can pick and roll. You can put him in a flare screen. He can set a flare screen, and he just can manipulate the offense so much. Uh, actually, my favorite thing about his game is that yes, he can shoot the three as a big man, but he operates in the mid post as efficient or not as the most efficient player that I saw uh, the last two years in college basketball, adding him into that system. I mean, pretty dangerous for opposing teams. A couple more topics I wanted to hit on with you. Transfer rule. You in favor of immediate blanket waiver eligibility for guys who transfer. I go back and forth on this all the time. Um, my initial response would say yes, but then the redshirt year would have to happen if you want to transfer again. I was a transfer athlete. Um, I didn't leave because I was a bad kid. Uh, I didn't leave because of playing time. I, I mean, I was, a, I, I was a scrawny little kid in the ACC. That, I think I started like 11 or 12 games. I wasn't complaining about playing time. I was overjoyed. But I, I made a recruiting mistake, and I didn't have enough relationship with the head coach, and I didn't study the system enough. And it wasn't the right system for me. And so I finished out the season the best way that I could. And I made a decision afterwards. Um, the red shirt year was mentally the most taxing year of my life, except for now when I have a three-year-old, one-year-old during quarantine. Other than that, it was the most mentally taxing year of my life. And um, uh, so I'm in favor of it, um, uh, except that I, I think you're going to have to see some restrictions. I am not in favor of transferring in the middle of the season just because you're unhappy. Players will be unhappy. That's going to happen. Um, uh, most coaches won't like that, uh, but assistant coaches have a tendency to be hypocritical when they say that we're tired of all these transfer waivers getting handed out like hotcakes, but then if a transfer comes knocking on their door, they're the first one to accept them. What's the key for name, image, and likeness regulations to work? Oh, man, we don't have enough time, John. Um, but <laughs> Your I'm kids are going to be awake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm excited that it's here. I think it's, I, I think it's the right step to make. Uh, I believe in amateurism, but I also believe in NIL. I think that's the nirvana situation for college basketball. What's going to have to happen to, uh, to properly um, uh, create a, um, a fluid system of athletes getting um, uh, – uh, monetary value from name image and likeness is that universities will have to hire somewhat of a financial marketing in-house expert to help oversee that um i don't think agents should be uh, in college basketball um i i hope that never happens um if you're an athlete you don't want to be an employee because you don't want to have to pay taxes and your budget will decrease if you're an employee of the university that's just what's going to happen but that's another conversation john um universities will have to hire essentially a name image and likeness expert to help the athletes navigate not just the marketing and the financial management side which is a huge piece um but also trying to keep 
some of the individuals at bay who are only in for the name on the back of the jersey. And um, you, you want to try to eliminate some of the characters on the peripheral for that. And I think that's where that's where you're going to have to hire an individual to help oversee that. It's a great, I will say this though, we talk about all the time about athletes blowing their money, going broke after a couple of years or in massive amounts of debt. If a university is smart, they're going to hire a financial expert in-house to help the athletes understand financial management and how to properly navigate that. If a, if a university is smart, if a college is smart, that would be one of my biggest recruiting tools if we had a financial expert in-house on campus that would help the athletes navigate all this. Yeah, that truer words have never been spoken. That That is so needed uh, on these campuses. We've already started to see some universities get into partnerships with organizations that uh, help promote a, a brand or a business that will help student athletes with this down the road. I just saw last week Marquette University, their athletic department signed on with Influencer. Uh, to try to, that's a big movement right there. Huge, no doubt. Uh, you, the athlete, the thing that if, if you're smart and Wojo is smart, Wojo is smart. If you partner up early, you get out ahead of it early and you lay down some guidelines, athletes will be able to have a team focus on the court and somewhat of an individualized brand focus off the court. If you're smart, it's the way of the world right now. And if I just don't have any problem with an athlete making 10,000 bucks in a season because he's pushing product on the side, what, what you're going to have to lay down ground rules of, like, hey, coach, I need more playing time because I need more followers. You know, you better be ready for that conversation if you're a coach, but you better be ready for a conversation if you're a player, because if you really want to know what the free market is like, it is way worse than the life of a college athlete. You want to open up the market as soon as you start playing bad and all of a sudden the car dealership or, 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 or the marketing team says, hey, man, you know, we, we've got to kind of slow down a little bit because people forget forgetting about you. You better, you better have mental health coaches as partner, mental health coaches partnered with the, you know, the influencers of the world, those companies, because you don't want to get a kid up, get caught up in a mixture of, oh man, I'm not doing well, so my worth is decreased. That's a dangerous, slippery slope. But I believe you get out, if you get out front of it early, if you lay guidelines in front of it now, you know, uh, I think the easy conversation is this, is Brad Stevens has a great quote. He's like, my door is always open to talk about playing time, just as long as you're ready for an honest conversation about playing time. Before I let you go, let's have some fun here. You're a movie buff. Give me oh, a couple, yeah. Give me a couple movie selections out there uh, for us to catch that you've watched recently. Well, what, well how, let's change it. What's your genre of choice right now, John? And then, I, then I'll hit you with a couple. Like, what, what do, we need to help out John right now. So let's, let's do that. What do you got? <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what are you in the mood for? I love thrillers. Any, anything thriller, if it's based on a true story, even if it's not, uh, just something deep, you know, something interesting. The most underrated thrillers that I think it, it, it really kind of helped Robert Downey Jr. kind of uh, become more of a mainstay back in Hollywood is Zodiac. I don't know if you've seen Haven't Zodiac. Seen so Zodiac, uh, Robert Downey Jr., Jake Gyllenhaal, it's based off the real Zodiac killers, uh, the, the real Zodiac killer. And um, it is a fascinating dive into that time. And I think Jake Gyllenhaal and Robert Downey Jr. play kind of contrasting styles. And it really, really elevates. It's there are parts in which it's fascinating and scary, and I think that's the recipe for a good, good thriller. You know, if you can, if you can um, marry the fascinating and the scary together, I think that becomes a, a really heck of a popcorn flick. I would highly encourage you to check out Zodiac. Because you, I'm going to check it out. I'm going to check it out, and now I'm going to, I'm going to put you to the test here. So okay. you are, you are producing. The next big 30 for 30. And this is fascinating here because you could you could select a lot of different things in the sport, but you get to select either a coach as the subject, a program as the subject. What where are you going with this? 
Yeah, uh, UCLA. It's 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 not even a question in my opinion. Um, I, I because I think it's fascinating where uh, UCLA has um, when you when you look at everything for John Wooden, and then there was this drop off. Um, I found it really interesting that a lot of the donors um, and the supporters for UCLA didn't want to give money. Uh, and didn't want to donate to increase their uh, uh, stature as a program because they felt that the John Wooden way of doing th doing things on a shoestring budget was worthy of uh, of the legacy of UCLA. UCLA just got a practice gym not but two years ago. Um, Poly uh, uh, Pavilion uh, was not the nicest place to play. It took forever to get upgrades, to pay for upgrades. UCLA was the only team in the Pac-12 that didn't charter flights because they didn't have it in their budget. UCLA did not have a charter. And I think when you look at the coaches who had success and then were fired abruptly, you know, the Steve, Steve Lavin and so forth, I think how to coach under that shadow of John Wooden to me would be fascinating. And the fact that UCLA up until last year had no uh, uh, private uh, charter uh, flights didn't have a practice gym. Poly Pavilion wasn't upgraded for over 25 years. I think living in the shadow of John Wooden and coaching at UCLA would be one of the most fascinating topics. I'll keep it in the Big East. If I had to pick a second choice, though, John, it would be the Final Four Butler teams. So uh, I'm actually reading. I'm, I'm reading um, uh, underdogs right now. Uh, which is about uh, the, uh, that Butler basketball team that went to the Final Four. It's a great read. And I, and I, I would love to see a 30 for 30 on uh, Brad Stevens. Can I tell you, uh, if I'm, I don't mean to be filibustering here, but I have a great um, – I was going to Butler before NC State came in in the mix. And um, when I went on my visit, Todd Licklider was a head coach. And I loved that. I loved campus. I loved everything about Butler. And Brad Stevens was the volunteer video coordinator at the time. And we just hit it off. We had great conversations. And I really, really enjoyed it. I was like, oh, that guy's going to be a good coach one day. And um, fast forward to a couple years, uh, a couple years later, Brad Stevens, after his first Final Four run, is doing a coach's clinic in Orlando. And I go to the coach's clinic, and I hadn't talked to him for almost 10 years. And uh, he, uh, he, um, uh, he finishes the coach's clinic and he, and he starts a Q&A. And I'm sitting in the stands and people are asking questions and there's kind of a lull. And then I asked a question. I said, hey, coach. And I didn't, I didn't like bring myself up or anything. I said, hey, coach, do you, uh, has your recruiting changed since you've been in the Final Four and had more recognition? He had a great answer. Um, and I just kind of talked about the Butler way and all that stuff. And then he pauses and he looks up in the stands and there's about 200 coaches in the stands, high school, college coaches. And he goes, hey, Mike, it's great to see you. Uh, we had really great conversations about that pick and roll. How great was that? Um, <laughs> everybody turns and looks at me and says, um, and says, who is this guy? But I went up and chatted with him afterwards. And he just he remembered, remembered me from one recruiting visit and a, and a couple of conversations on the phone. I thought that was really cool. Just some fascinating stuff from Mike O'Donnell and a great story there with Butler. Indianapolis will be the 2021 Final Four host city, and we'll be talking about a 10-year anniversary of those Butler Bulldogs teams, 2010-2011, of making those Final Four runs, that incredible run where the Final Four was in Indy and the Bulldogs made it. It's etched in our memories forever. And Mike uh, brought up some really good stories there, and uh, I got to watch Zodiac. I'm going to add it to my list right now. It sounds uh, very entertaining. I know it's on Netflix, so I got to get to it. It's added to my list. Another episode of Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is in the books. Thanks again to Mike O'Donnell for spending some time with us. Thanks also to our producer, Mike Lieber, and Bruce Bernstein for all their help. Tom Phillip edits the show. We always appreciate his contributions, and we hope you keep following at Pure Hoops Media on Twitter for those video posts. We've gone to more video here, and there's been a NBA playoff coverage that's been put up. Uh, across our podcast network here at Pure Hoops Media. So you can check out the other shows. It's Catch and Shoot 2.0 with Aaron Berlin and Otto Strong. It drops each Wednesday. Each Thursday morning, Monica McNutt, King McClure, they drop by with buckets, boards, and blocks. You can check it out on Thursdays. Every Friday, it's the Pure Hoops podcast. BJ Armstrong, Eric Newman, they're doing great NBA playoff coverage. Love their previews. 
and the Mike Wise Show drops each Monday. We'll be back every Tuesday with Full Court Press. Check out all of our shows, subscribe, download them, rate and review them. Most of all, enjoy. See you next week on Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams. Full Court Press with Fanta and Adams is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.